2: Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's
3: chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The
2: old question in science is, how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success.
3: I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind.
2: We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules... Now, it's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. I presume it's your homepage, askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about uh, our upcoming guests. But today, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and seriously, people, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey.
3: Greetings, Bill. Bill, it is so good to be here. Now, you know, these podcast episodes are like my children. I do have actual children. I love them all equally. And as you may know, I am personally a nut for all things astronomical, all things cosmological. That is I'm, a
2: true fact, everyone. And I'm especially, not I'm, a false fact.
3: And I'm especially, I'm obsessed with the science of things that we can't see, the invisible aspects of the universe. So... Mind blown! I am very, very excited today by the guest who we have on the show.
2: Yes, my friends, today we have none other than Dr. Priya Natarajan. She is a theoretical astrophysicist at Yale. Her research focuses on cosmology, gravitational lensing, and the physics of black holes. Dr. Natarajan, welcome! Welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Priya?
4: Absolutely, super delighted to be here.
2: Okay, before we do anything. Just what is a black hole, in your view? I guess maybe that's a pun. In your, uh, <laughs> in, your, <laughs> in, your in
3: your, in your unview, uh, <laughs> everybody has heard of a black hole. But when you ask somebody, I don't know, man on the street interview, what is a black hole? I'm not sure many people could answer, but I will bet you could.
4: What? I mean, there are three different ways of thinking about a black hole that I think are kind of useful. And, you know, ultimately, a black hole is all of those things. So the hardest thing is going to be to actually put those three images that I'm going to give you of a black hole, pun intended, images. Of well, radio is the most
2: visual medium. Go for That's- it.
4: So the first is that a black hole is the end state of massive stars in the universe. So when stars exhaust their fuel and they're done with nuclear burning, if they're more massive than 8 to 10 times the mass of our sun, they leave behind a very dense, compact Corpse, And that's a black hole. So that's one way of thinking about a black hole. And in fact, this is the astrophysical way in which we think about black holes. And this is how we've actually gone out and detected them. The other way to think about a black hole is, you know, black holes are exciting, enigmatic seductive. Okay, there's really no other word, right? Okay, so the other way of thinking about a black hole that kind of uses the peculiar properties that black holes have is the fact that not even light can escape from a black hole. So that you know, to think about that, what does that mean? So if you think about the Earth and we think about all the rocket launches that we're doing, so, you know, Cape Canaveral, right, we're boosting a rocket about 12 kilometers a second. So it's like the escape velocity that you need to escape the gravitational grip of the Earth. So for a black hole, so we have this notion of an escape velocity, and basically that tells you how tightly gravity holds on to something, say, like a rocket. So to escape, you have to blast off. For a black hole that blast off speed is the speed of light. And and the thing is nothing material can actually minor detail, nothing material can actually be blasted off at that speed.
2: Yeah, because right? you can't go to the speed of light without That's right. It's a cosmic it.
4: speed limit basically. Yeah. That's it. Right, So I think that's another way of thinking about a black hole that really hones in on one of the bizarre properties. And the consequence of this sort of escape speed, et cetera, is that you calculate the escape speed at like a location for a body that has mass. So on the Earth's surface is what I was giving you, that escape speed. So for a black hole, there is a bizarre surface, there's a bizarre region, and that's called the event horizon. And so the third way of thinking about a black hole actually relates to how we started thinking about them in the first place. They were basically a weird mathematical solution to Einstein's field equations of general relativity. So Einstein's theory of general relativity, right, which is this totally cool, amazing theory because of how profound it is. He kind of reformulated Newton's gravity and he had this insight that showed that the shape of space is intricately related to the matter that sits on that space. And so he was able to explain what gravity is, not just what gravity does, which is what Newton was able to do very well, but he was able to show that gravity is this kind of interplay between matter and the shape of space. And what that means is that if you have a piece of matter that is very compact and very dense, and it is embedded in space-time, this field, this sheet, which we visualize as a fabric and as a sheet, then the presence of matter will cause a little pothole in that sheet. So it changes the shape of space right around it. And how extremely and dramatically it changes shape depends on the details of how the matter is packed. So a black hole then is almost like a point which not only causes, like, a pothole, but it causes a puncture in space-time. That's how dense it is.
3: Okay, okay. I have to ask you a question, because this, this is a description of black holes that really stuck with me. I want to get find out if it's useful or not. One researcher told me, you can think of a black hole as like a waterfall. that the, that's like It's like spa- space-time falling into this region so quickly yeah. that you can basically never swim upstream it, it, it's falling in at the speed of light and so you can never get out the idea of a black hole is a waterfall just
2: but kind of here's the thing everybody me. this is happening in four dimensions this is to say it's happening not in two dimensions and a, and a camera it's happening in three dimensions and time are you able priya are you able to visualize that
4: well i have an intuitive way of visualizing it I have a sense of what that must can, be can like. Can you help
3: us? Can you share it? Yeah, help me. <laughs> well, is it something you can communicate?
4: <laughs> I I think uh, the closest I can tell you to go get a feel for it is there's an app called 4D on the iPhone. And what that actually shows you, it's sort of like the Tesseract. You can kind of see in a higher dimensional space how things would move. So in a way, a, what you
3: A tesseract is a four-dimensional cube.
4: Yeah. But no, I think, Bill, you hit the spot. I mean, it is a pretty inadequate description. And we have not come up with a better way um, to visualize four dimensions. And, you know, I work with a lot of uh, artists and sculptors. And one of my friends, Anthony Gormley, who's a sculptor very renowned in the UK, has been nagging me for years saying, Priya, you've got to come up with a better way to explain this because you know you also have to explain that the universe is this sheet there's nothing above there's nothing below so you know there's all this complication it kind of really breaks down
2: one way that always interests me as science educator or whatever is how did we get here how are all these things first discovered or figured out and maybe that will help all of us figure out how you people like you are able to visualize that let us roll our first voicemail message
0: hi bill when were black holes first discovered and
4: what was the first black hole discovered The way I like to put it is they became real. So the equations, uh, Einstein predicted that there was this black hole solution, right? Actually, you know, Einstein didn't believe in the solution. It was Schwarzschild who found the solution. And what I mean by the solution is the shape of space around a very tiny compact mass. So eventually... And as I said, right, one of the explanations is black holes are tied to stellar fates. So there are three possible ways in which a star can die, right? It can leave a black hole if it's a massive star, or it can leave a white dwarf or a neutron star. The other two end states were already discovered in the early 1900s and nineteen hundreds. Neutron stars. And white dwarfs, Mm
2: -hmm. right? What's the difference?
4: So um, neutron stars are basically, uh, you know, neutrons that are packed very, very tightly. So it's just the processes that, you know, um, the birth mass of a star determines its evolution and life cycle. And so different stars end up with different outcomes. And a white dwarf is just a very cool, cool rock that is cold and it's a leftover, so the first black hole expected, suspected candidate was Cygnus uh, X-1. But it wasn't clear that it was. So it was in 1970 when the X-rays...
2: 1970?
4: Se- yep. That's just like last week, I was Right. No, 1960s pulsars, which were pulsating, rotating neutron stars were discovered, okay? So that showed you that these stellar death outcomes are real and that they're going to, you know, yes, you're on the right track. But you, ha- they hadn't found a black hole quite yet. Cygnus X1 is a black hole, a stellar mass black hole in a binary, And that was actually detected as a confirmed as a black hole in 1970, when an x-ray satellite called Uhuru was launched. And the way they discovered it is because of the variability of the source, that it was, you know, when black holes feed, matter falls onto them. And that matter-
3: Let's back up on this for a second. This is something that people find very confusing. Black hole should be black. And yet- you find it observationally by looking for radiation. So how does radiation get out of a black hole?
4: Right. So this radiation that you're seeing is not inside a black hole. It's not coming from inside. It's on route. So it's the material that's on route to a black hole being sucked in that gets heated up, pulled in dramatically that starts to glow. So it's the dying gasps of the stuff of gas mostly that
2: that's on its way to its ultimate fate of disappearing. So Priya, what happens to stuff that Can we roll a voicemail? Can we roll the second voicemail? <laughs>
3: Hi, I was
2: wondering if black holes absorb everything
3: including light. Where does that light and other stuff go? That's yes.
2: <laughs> yes. Right on questioner what, yeah. what happens? Because it's is a black hole ultimately going to absorb everything that we know, and where's all that go? To another place at another time, like the wrinkle thereof in time?
3: Kids, <laughs> or is it perpetual story. oblivion?
4: Well, okay, so first of all, whatever goes in, it's a point of no return. So let's get that clear, sorted out. What? Where does <laughs> it go? So massive as a black hole is, it has this event horizon, which is kind of like the sacred boundary, if you will, that once you cross, you're gone. But then it also has a region of influence over which it dominates. So basically not everything is going to end up in the black hole, right? So if we have a black hole in the center of the Milky Way, our galaxy, we're not going to end up in it. Why? Because it's it's four million times the mass of the sun. That sounds like a lot, but it's a millionth <laughs> of the mass of the entire galaxy. And its region of influence is tiny. So we are way far away, for example. So a black hole has a fixed region of influence within which it will start sucking stuff. As for what happens to the stuff that actually falls in. So it's complicated. OK, so first of all. Depending on where you are as an observer, you will see different things happening as stuff approaches a black hole. Suppose I have the unfortunate fate of falling into a black hole, let's say feet first. I love my hair, so I think I'd like to go feet first, right? So if I get sucked in, when I get closer and closer to the event horizon, let's think about two people looking at what's my sad fate. One person observer who's really far away from the black hole and another person who's pretty close, who's kind of, you know, maybe there's a camera on me, right? And I'm going in. So for the person who is far away, they will see me falling towards the black hole taking longer and longer and longer to reach the event horizon. And I would appear redder and redder. The light, my image to them will appear redder and redder and more redder. More
3: stretched out. The light yeah, waves are stretched, stretched out. out. So wait, will, will they ever see you fall in?
4: Uh, it will take an infinite, long, infinite amount of time from their vantage point. However, me, the sad person falling in, will experience something Fundamentally different. And of course, it's going to matter on the kind of black hole I'm going to fall into. So these stellar mass black holes, the ones that are the end states of stars, they actually would be much more violent death because their density is much, much higher than the supermassive black holes. So if I was falling into one of them, what would happen is that the difference in the strength of gravity that I'm being pulled in between my legs and my hair would totally stretch me out. So this is like a technical term that you both clearly heard before. It's called spaghettification.
2: Yeah, so you you would turn into a nice
3: spaghetti pasta,
2: which would be bad for you generally. So So let's say you could survive that. Can we roll the voicemail from Rebecca? Hi,
0: this is Rebecca. What would happen if people went into the black hole? Would they come back or would they die? Thank you.
4: They would die. Yeah. (laughs) wait, We
3: saw the movie interstellar. They didn't. Matthew McConaughey didn't die.
4: Right. Well, that's that's Hollywood for you. Although I have to say I shouldn't knock it. I love that film. But yeah, coming back. Yes. In fact, no matter you fall into a stellar mass black hole or a supermass black hole, people falling in, which reminds me of your column mentioning, there are people that I have occasionally wanted to send into one of these black holes, I have to say. Yeah, I've uh, got a few in mind. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, but the human tissue will not survive any of this. So yeah, basically materially, we can talk about, you know, what we might be feeling in all the spaghettification and stuff, but, you know, biological tissues, we'd be gone. Uh, yes. Yes. Certain depth and violent, painful, certain depth. Oof.
3: Okay, so I'm not alive, but whatever my, my stuff, my atoms, whatever makes it through, then do you just keep falling all the way to the center of the black hole and you just stay there forever? What What happens right. once you're inside?
4: So, so the thing is, okay, so the peculiar thing about the black hole, which we've managed to avoid so far in the conversation, is that it encases something called a singularity. So this is, these are locations, if you will, or uh, places in the universe where all known laws of physics break down. So we have no way of thinking about what really happens. So from the point of view of the person who is falling into the black hole, you would actually reach the singularity in a finite time from your point of view. And basically, that's it. And, you know, you can't say anything more once you hit the singularity.
0: Stick around for more science rules after this. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.
1: From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there, With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available Intelligent Four-Wheel Drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent Four-Wheel Drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.
2: Science Rules is back. Tell us about dark matter, if you will.
4: You know, we are attaching the moniker Dark to really convey that what we know is provisional at the moment, and this is apt to change, okay? So, and it's a standard.
3: So it's dark as unknown more than it is dark as in it's black yes. and you can't see it.
4: That's right. Um, it's, but, you know, it turns out that all dark matter and dark energy are both sort of invisible entities that shape the universe. Look, you have to understand, there's a real checkered history of dark unseen things, right? I mean, in early modern <laughs> science, there was miasma, there was phlogiston, ether. I mean, ether, it? Yeah. yeah. And they all went away, right? And I'm actually often asked that. So so are you saying, Priya, that you know, dark matter may go away? No, I don't think it's gonna go away. And I think that's where dark matter and dark energy and what we're doing now in science is fundamentally different from what was happening in early modern science.
2: Well, what and, are you doing? What's your work in dark energy dark matter?
4: So in dark matter my work is to map the spatial distribution of dark matter. So we have a theoretical understanding that dark matter that forms it's a mysterious particle. So that's the thing that we don't know about it. We don't But you
2: think it's a particle. You think it's quantized yes. in some way?
4: yeah it's a particle with a mass and it forms in the very early universe and our current theories particle physics theories permit formation of many such potential particles and these particles have peculiar properties they are collisionless so they don't have any pressure so they don't collide they don't have pressure very unlike a normal gas and they interact only via gravity and so they aggregate via gravity and they aggregate in the universe, so they shape the universe. So they form the scaffolding in which galaxies form eventually. So they form the cocoons in which gas collides, cools, collapses, forms stars. And sort of dark matter kind of holds everything together. And it really does hold the entire universe together in terms of structure. But it spatially, as I said, it clumps in different ways in the universe. And so what I am interested in is mapping how it is distributed spatially and to do it as exquisitely as possible to get clues to its nature.
3: Okay. Hold on one second. I have to stop you here. How do you map something that's invisible?
4: Aha! That, that seems
3: like a paradox.
4: Aha. We map it indirectly and we map it coming back to our trampoline and matter so What happens is whenever dark matter aggregates, well, any matter aggregates, as we saw earlier, it would cause a little pothole in the trampoline. And remember, the trampoline is our universe, and light propagates up and down these potholes on its way to us from distant galaxies because of matter that is intervening. So it causes the bending of light, and the bending of light from distant galaxies, right, it's telegraphed in the shape of the galaxy that we actually measure. And that shape gets mangled because it's gone through many, many potholes. But it it has an imprint of every deep pothole that it has. It has an imprint of every pothole, but the deepest ones leave the deepest scars. So we can actually infer by looking at the mangled shape of galaxies, we can reconstruct the path of light and therefore, all the blobs of matter—in this case, mostly dark matter—that it encountered on its way.
2: And so that's the gravitational lens. lensing. Lensing, yeah. All right. Now, are we going to build a detector for particles of dark, which I like to call darkons, by the way? <laughs> darkons. <laughs> darkons. When they're when you all discover those. So yeah. Here's what I'm driving at. Uh, neutrinos mm-hmm. were discovered, uh, or inferred, or figured out, and then we got a mine in North Dakota, where we are doing our best to detect neutrinos. Yep. We deep underground, neutrinos are zipping through us all day, all the time, showing no respect. Are, are we gonna be able to build a dark matter, a darkon detector?
4: They are there already. I mean, there are many of them. And they're also underground, but they use a slightly different, so they use xenon. And what you are waiting for is just like the neutrino. You're actually waiting for a dark matter particle to pass through. And you can think of xenon as sort of crystals with sort of edges and, you know, regular structure. And so you can think of a dark matter particle going through and jiggling its structure. So we are like waiting, waiting and waiting and watching to actually catch a jiggle that was produced by a dark matter particle and not by a truck that is going by or whatever. So it's it's a really tough experiment. So you're no saying we, we,
3: we have dark matter detectors. They just don't work yet.
4: No, they're working. They just haven't detected anything yet.
3: Well, okay. <laughs> in that sense, they don't work. I
4: think they work. I mean, the, in principle. But yeah. the problem is we don't quite know what we're looking for. And so, right. you know, till very recently, right, we had all been obsessed with one particular kind of particle, the WIMPs weakly interacting massive particles and, in particular, something called a neutralino that we were kind of obsessed with as the putative dark matter particle. And so, you know, we were tailoring our experiments to kind of catch that particular particle. We haven't found it yet after 20 odd years of looking. So now the crowd has decided that maybe finally that we should be more open-minded and maybe we should think about other possible particles. Which uh, could constitute the dark matter. So the next particle that we are all looking at now are called axions.
3: Now I have to ask: You're on Twitter. You're on social media. You kind of you know that there's a whole group of people who are fascinated by all of this, including a group of skeptics who say maybe our whole theory of gravity is wrong. Maybe maybe there is no dark matter. Maybe this maybe everyone is just kind of barking up the wrong tree. Why are you convinced that it is a particle and that those people who say, we just don't understand gravity, are wrong?
4: Right. right, That's a great question. So first of all, for the record, right, I'm very open-minded. But the current theory that we have, and it's called cold dark matter, which is just these cold particles that form the dark matter, that theory is extremely successful and so it can explain this light bending that we see and you know i have been spending most of my career trying to confront this theory with better and better observational data to see if some crack opens up and in fact recently i'll come back to that in a minute we found a possible little crack and it, these cracks are exciting because you know they could suggest that the theory needs a little bit of tweaking or it could point to something fundamentally off, right? So we don't know which option uh, works right now. But one of the alternative theories that has been proposed for dark matter is modifying the nature of gravity itself, right? That gravity, instead of I love the way
2: you throw that, modifying the nature of gravity itself, right? Right, oh yeah, right, sure.
4: Right so you know the simplest cla- i mean the simplest class of theories are ones that say you know the gravity falls off as 1 over r squared they say well depending on the environment and the scales that you're talking about it doesn't quite fall off that way okay so i think that's a that's a credible question and there's this theory there are these theories of modified gravity so the problem with these theories and there've been many avatars of these theories even the most recent avatar the one thing they have not been able to explain in that theory is the amount of light bending. So this is the stuff I work on, okay? Mm -hmm. So they are not able to explain the amount of light bending that a cluster of galaxies produces. A cluster of galaxies is the largest repository of dark matter in the universe. It's about a 1,000 galaxies held together by dark matter. They are rare objects, but there are enough of them that we have seen the dramatic lensing that they produce.
2: Can we get this this voicemail? This guy is going to ask my question. Hi
3: there, Bill. It's Mark Scrivener here, calling from Calgary, Alberta. What's the
1: relationship between galaxy clusters and black holes?
4: Well, obviously, look... It would be utter wish fulfillment for me if dark matter, black holes, dark energy were all somehow related. Alas, they're not, so far we don't think they are. They're speculations. No, so black holes basically are these compact dense objects that sit in the centers of galaxies. So how they are distributed in galaxies is fundamentally different. Dark matter is smeared everywhere in the universe lightly, and it's lumped in regions where you form galaxies. There are bigger globs of dark matter in clusters of galaxies. So clusters of galaxies contain about a thousand galaxies that are held together. They're by moving gravity. around by gravity, by the gravity of the dark matter. And each of these galaxies could, in principle, contain a black hole in its center. Not all galaxies do. We think most galaxies contain black holes in their centers.
2: Okay, so let me ask you this. Could Mark have asked this question in another way? Is there no such thing as a rogue black hole? You know what I mean? A black hole just out there between galaxies.
3: Between galaxies, just got off on its own.
4: Totally. No, no. It's that would be an amazing question to ask because that is what we are finding evidence for. That if our current ideas of how black holes assemble and grow over cosmic time are correct, there should be huge populations of wandering black holes lingering in the outskirts of galaxies as well. They're wow. predicted and we haven't quite found them, but we know that you have these off-center black holes because recently we've started discovering this class of very elusive black holes called intermediate mass black holes. Basically something that's between a hundred to a thousand times the mass of the sun, that kind of black hole. That. Stage of a black hole's life, you know, the teenage years, right? So <laughs> those black holes, um, they have been, we couldn't find them, right? For the longest time, we couldn't find them because the amount of matter they would suck in because they're tinier than the supermassives would just not be bright enough for our X-ray telescopes to catch yet. They'd be too faint. and But we knew that if you start from the stellar mass black holes and you feed gas and you grow a supermassive, black hole, so you're starting from something that's few times the mass of the t- sun to something that is a million to a billion times the mass of the sun, then it has to go through this stage of being a few thousand times.
2: The black holes that were first discovered were seen by looking at this, the region of influence where gas was yes. swirling around and the stars
4: way. And stars. And mm-hmm. star-
2: but when you're a rogue, black- when you're wandering, lingering black hole, there isn't stuff around them there isn't as much stuff around them. Is that
4: right they harder Yeah, that's right. So depending on how far away from the gassy part of a galaxy they're wandering, there may be nothing around them. If they have come from the collision of these, of two galaxies, they may have a little bit of stars attached to them. But the way you discover these guys, and we have evidence for them now, is what are called the tidal disruption events. You have a poor star that strays close and gets ripped apart, and you see the flash.
3: (laughs) So you can only see them if they're not completely alone. If they're completely alone, then you've got like a full-on goth black hole. It's a teenager. (laughs) It's sullen. It's all on its own. It doesn't want to have anything at all to do with it. And it's lurking,
4: looking to stir up trouble. Because, you know, It's circling and it's going to fall in eventually, into the center.
3: Eventually, it'll come back to the family, isn't that the way? (laughs) To
2: the center of the galaxy cluster or to another black hole?
4: To the center of a black hole at the center of a galaxy. Of a galaxy. Yeah, and you know, a galaxy cluster has a central bright galaxy. The brightest galaxy is right at the center of a cluster of galaxies, and that usually has the monster black hole as well.
3: Okay, so hold on. I want to get ba- I want to get back to your work because you're describing, you know, there's this dark matter and it's smeared and it's here and it's there and it's 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 distributed in these halos around galaxies. You do this by looking at light. So you're looking at the shapes of different galaxies and then using that to map the dark matter. How does that how do you actually do that? Like what is your what is your actual research?
4: Right. So basically, you look at these mangled shapes of galaxies and, you know, the mangling that's produced by clusters of galaxies, because as I said, they are the biggest dollops of dark matter. And the question is that conceptually, we think of a dark matter in a cluster as a mountain range. So it's kind of, you know, a peak, and there are all these little peaks. So dark matter would be distributed, that's what I mean when I say distributed on many different scales. So you have this huge mountain range, and you have all these regions where you could have large dollops that of dark matter. And we associate, so cluster, as I said, has about a thousand galaxies. So we associate, the conceptual model is, that's the way the dark matter is distributed, and that the mass is associated with the light. So each of these peaks is actually a place, it's the dark matter halo of a cluster galaxy. So the light of the cluster galaxy you see, you don't see its dark matter halo, but that's what survives and that's what you see as these peaks. So as I mentioned earlier, right, clusters are actually quite rare in the universe. They cause, when you look through a cluster, you see extremal distortion. And they're very, they, they are a small number on the sky, so most of the universe. When you look out at the dark sky, night sky, you are not seeing too much lensing. You are seeing very little lensing. Okay. So when
2: you say very few, how few is very few?
4: Because you all talk about billions and billions. Right. So, um, for example, they, you know, clusters in the nearby universe. In sort of a you know, few hundred megaparsec or so, you'd find a handful of them. So they're very sparse.
3: Okay, a megaparsec is about 3 million light years. If that helps anybody, I don't know that, that
2: that's any more meaningful. How did you get into this?
4: You know, I grew up in India as a child and my parents, who happen to be professors, bought me a microscope and a telescope to play with because I was like this curious child and I would just bug them with questions all the time. And they thought, let's give her something that, you know, this was before computers. Okay, I'm not going to say anything more about my age, except that, you know, I broke my teeth (laughs) on Commodore 64 and, you know, Sinclair ZX Spectrum, enough said, but anyway. You're a
3: kid, you're I, a kid. I think, I think you're still the youngest person on this <laughs> podcast. So,
4: so um, you know, I started looking at the nice guy and I was an amateur astronomer and I got hooked and I loved science. I mean, and I love figuring things out. And I also got, it was very lucky that um, the Nehru Planetarium in Delhi, New Delhi is where I grew up. They had a new director who was very energetic and, you know got started the Amateur Astronomers Club. And I had my first taste of research actually working with her because I had a Commodore 64. And I had my parents had bought me a computer, and I'd learned to program. And I was like, I want to calculate something. And so I showed up at her door, and I pestered her and pestered her till she gave me a project. And she gave me a project that she thought I wouldn't be able to do and to just get rid of me. But, you know, I was not going to give up. So it was... Um, the night sky, because I was an amateur astronomer in Delhi, in the national newspaper, they would publish uh, an image of the night sky for every month, showing you which planets you should be able to see. Yeah, a star map. Yeah, a star map, yeah. And she said, why don't you make a star map? Why don't you make your own star map? Compute it. Look at, you know, the vantage point of New Delhi and make the star map. So this was summer holidays, and uh, she said, make a star map for September. What should you be able to see in the night sky from Delhi? You have your telescope, you know, right? It'll be very helpful. So hard problem. And but, you know, I cracked it. Um, I worked day and night on it and um, I figured it out. And then I went and showed. you know, you, you had to have a printout, right? There was no laptop. There was no screen. I had right. a printout of numbers and I had sort of this crude chart. I actually found all of this stuff in a box last summer. So I showed up and I told her, Oh, I've cracked it. Here is the map. Here is the visualization of the map. Yeah, it was a terrible printer, right? It was dot matrix printer. You guys remember those? Like dots and little right? That's all we
2: had and we were happy. (laughs) My kids.
4: (laughs) And and so she didn't believe me. She said, okay, this is great. And she said, okay, this is good. And what if you move to Boston or to uh, Melbourne, right? Northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere. What about the night sky then? Wouldn't you want to look at the star map then? I was like, aha, the way I've written this program, you just have to put in the latitude and longitude of any place on the planet, and I can make you the star map. And at this point, she was like, okay, I think this kid is, you know, how old
2: were gen- you at this point in the story? I
4: was 15.
3: Wow. not bad for 15. Not bad. Yeah. (laughs) That was when you knew. You're like, okay, this is the path for me.
4: Right. You know, but, you know, for a nanosecond. So, I, you know, I never thought about not being a scientist, right? So I grew up, I was very fortunate, right? I won the birth lottery in India, right? And my parents had these amazing, we had an amazing library and I loved maps. So I had all the various atlases you can imagine, atlases that I couldn't lift that were that big. And I knew I wanted a life of the mind and I wanted to be a scientist. But I think astronomy, per se, took me a while. And there was one other profession I briefly considered, as I say, for a nanosecond, architect.
3: So, oh, so you studied the architecture of the universe. So That's you're, kind right. of, you're kind of there.
0: Science Rules will be right back. You're listening to Science Rules.
2: How many types of stars are there? Do so you talk about a dozen, or do you start talk about one hundred and fifty thousand?
4: No, no, no. We're talking about a dozen basic types that we've classified.
2: So, will there be a dozen basic types of black holes?
4: Well, we already know that. I mean, the exciting potential thing in black holes is what is currently a speculative idea, which are these primordial black holes. These black holes that likely formed, you know, right at the Big Bang, close to the Big Bang, right after. And they would have just hung around and they might have seeded, you know, they could have seeded some of these supermassive black holes. Maybe they're just lingering on their own. So, you know, finding a primordial black hole would be totally totally cool and it would be unexpected in terms of finding black holes
2: and we find it with gravitational yeah how
3: would you recognize a a primordial black hole
4: that's a good point once something goes into a black hole we have no idea where it came from right so um When you see a black hole, you cannot quite tell, but there are clues from its environment, where it ends up and so on. So you need, you know, you need the entire theoretical framework to kind of make predictions to see if a black hole. So one current speculation, and you might have seen this in the news, is that, you know, this planet nine that is uh, that has pushed out. Standing in for Pluto, I can't give up on Pluto. I have to say, you know.
2: Well, Pluto is just not one of the traditional planets. It's fine. I know. It's just it's, it's, this a, it's other a nice, thing.
3: it's a great little world. It's it's, a, a, not, it's, it's not, fantastic, it's a wonderful yeah.
2: thing, but Fair it's point. not one of the eight traditional planets. All right.
4: right. But well, we have a ninth one standing in now. So there's some speculation that this ninth thing could be a primordial black hole. Okay, so
2: just orbiting our own star. Yeah. You've remarked that um, there'll never be another Einstein. Right. Why do you say that?
4: Well, first of all, you know, I tend not to... I mean, Einstein was clearly, you know, made spectacular contributions, profound insight. um, It's become a
2: synonym for profound insight.
4: I think that the reason, the sophistication... Uh, So there are a couple of reasons why I don't think there'll be an Einstein. First of all, I don't like this kind of valorizing of individual people when science as an activity now is a team activity. It's collaborative and so on and so forth. So there is that. From the intellectual point of view, I think what is hard to imagine is given the sophistication and maturity of our understanding in so many fields, it's going to be hard for one person to come up because a lot of the insights come from synthesis of things that are completely different. That's usually when we have seen people who have these great insights. You know, he married geometry and mathematics to physics in a very profound way. And I think at this point where we are intellectually in physics and mathematics and so on, that it's hard to imagine that one person can have the kind of mastery in such a broad Range of subjects to have that kind of insight, right? But I think a lot of my sort of skepticism is this idea of hero worshiping and genius that I find. Um, oh, actually, I'm
2: exhausted. Yeah, everybody me too. wants me to do a show about genius. Yeah, I would
3: love to hear one or two of the things of what you're working on now while you're kind of breaking out of your isolation.
4: Right, so one idea that I just finished, and in fact I think the paper is on the archive uh, as of today, uh, is a new way to make intermediate mass black holes. So remember these intermediate black holes. Oh, the old
2: way. Everybody did the old way. That's right. What do you what? The the old old way with with
3: like the the crank and the steel and the coal (laughs) and and like there's like messy. the yeah.
4: old way is the gradual feeding. And then there was another radical way in the very early universe that many collaborators and I have worked on. Those are called direct collapse black holes. So these are black holes that don't start life as a little stellar mass one. But from the get go, they're about a thousand, ten thousand times the mass of the sun. And, and that this, could have
2: happened after the Big Bang.
4: You no, know, no, no, not that soon, quite late. But, you know, early in the universe, uh, well after the Big Bang. At, you know, at the red chips, when the first galaxies and stars were assembling, roughly then, when the universe was about, you know, giga-year-old, two giga-years, less than two giga-years-old, maybe a giga-year-old or so. We believe that these kind of direct collapse black holes formed along with the little stellar mass guys that were the leftovers of the first stars and that were growing. So, But uh, with a collaborator of mine who unfortunately passed away um, sadly due to cancer a few years ago, his name is Tal Alexander, we had worked out that in the early universe there was a special cocoon, nuclear star clusters. So these are clusters of stars that are very tightly packed that form in the very early universe. They have a lot of gas in them. And we worked out that when one of the stars in that star cluster Finishes its life and becomes a little black hole. We calculated that it would be bouncing around, growing because there would be lots of gas. It would be feeding and bouncing, and then it would eventually get massive enough and it would slow down and it would sink to the center and it would make, you know, an intermediate mass black hole. And so, what I realized was that. You know, there's no reason for this. You see nuclear star clusters everywhere in the universe. Every galaxy has a few nuclear star clusters. So there's no reason, nothing in the physics dictates that this cannot happen later on in the universe. This can happen continually in the universe. So you can keep forming black holes. The current understanding was you make them very early on in the universe and you make the stellar mass ones, all the time but the intermediate mass black one black holes you make only early on in the universe so this was a way to show that you would have continual you could have continual black hole formation in nuclear star clusters that are sitting at the centers of galaxies. And what is cool about this model is that, remember, the black hole is bouncing around and it starts eventually getting, it gets braked. The motion gets slowed down and slowed down and then it settles to the center. But if something disruptive happens to this little cocoon of a nuclear star cluster, it may not grow to its full end point of an intermediate mass black hole, but it can grow to be 80 times the mass of the sun. So premature termination of growth will give you black holes in a very interesting mass range that is called the mass gap. So this there is a gap from about 60 to 130 or so solar masses, where it is hard to make a black hole from a single step from a star so you so can make so this
2: is an example hang on this is if i may this is an example of collaboration where you had a theoretical model and you had a giant computer that could crank the model and then you had astronomers observing these things and i presume that you're you're starting trying to count these intermediate black holes and compare it to the number that you would have predicted. Right.
3: And you have these LIGO studies of gravitational waves where you can sort of measure these colliding black holes. They're finding these big, big kind of intermediate black holes like you're talking
2: about. I want to get to one last challenge, which is just on my mind. So the idea you mentioned that there would probably not be another Einstein because he had to synthesize all these things. Well, to me as a physics student in high school, You know, you do relativity with sort of uh, the back of an envelope, algebra. Mm -hmm. And his insight, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Einstein's insight was that we all presume that time goes by at a constant, if I may, rate. If you can say time has a rate or speed. Yep. But he said, that's not what it is. Let's just say that the speed of energy is constant. Right. And the speed of light. And then he got this amazing, one thing led to another. Do you think such a discovery is not possible? That one insight, like a, just one Just a conceptual breakthrough like that. Yeah, yeah.
4: It, it's possible because it came out of questioning something that was unquestioned before. That can happen. But I think that the kinds of insight that he was able to develop as quickly as he did would be hard to do now. So, yeah, I'm not discounting. I mean, there may be, you know, a she genius, you know, somewhere in Africa right now or India and who might come and challenge some orthodoxy, right? That Uh, stuff
2: doesn't come out of black holes, for example, as an example off the top of my head.
4: (laughs)
3: Right, (laughs) somebody who who can look at this world in a totally different way, a really fresh point of view. Hey, Corey. Bill, I, I hear something. It's not the sound of a black hole. It's bla- no, black well, this hole is definitely a terrestrial gonna, no. sound. It's a terrestrial this sound that sounds like thunder from lightning, which lightning. says to me that it's time for the lightning round. The lightning Priya. round, Priya, This means lightning-fast question. questions okay.
2: lightning-fast answers. If you weren't studying black holes and dark matter, what would you be
4: studying? Architecture? No, that lasted a nanosecond. No, I think I really cannot see myself doing anything else.
2: Wow, cool. What is the most surprising thing you know about black holes or what people should know about black holes?
4: This thing, this idea that uh, that black holes actually push things out, that they drive these outflows and that the gas that they push out is actually detectable. And the fact that it was detected 20 years after I predicted it, that was the coolest thing that has happened and the most unexpected Because, you know, it was a speculative theoretical idea, right? And who knows?
2: And it was detected with extraordinary telescopes.
4: Yes, with ALMA, the array in Chile.
2: That's pretty cool. On the desert of desert, desert desertish place where the... the, Atacama. uh, Atacama is is
4: beautiful.
2: Uh, Would you want to fly into a black hole just to see what it was like?
4: You know, at this moment, I have to say, given what's going on around, I think I'm kind of of ready.
2: (laughs) You thought about it.
4: (laughs) yes what's the most
2: confusing thing well about all of this but what's the most confusing thing about dark matter
4: i think they sort of conceptually what is confusing is to kind of understand how it piles up how and why it piles up right if it's not supposed to be it's super inert and so on and so forth why is it held in equilibrium in the ways that it is in a galaxy? I think that's quite puzzling to understand. We know the answer. I mean, we know it's gravity. Yeah, physics of gravity.
2: Yeah. Now, okay, speaking of which, uh, is there another mystery? Is there going to be another big physics breakthrough that you can predict?
4: Well, for I mean, there are... Definitely, we're going to find all kinds of peculiar black holes, you know, the various classes of black holes, big and small. So that's predictable. We're on track. We're going to find that out. I mean, in terms of unpredict yeah, of course, the future course of science can never be predicted. And that's what is wonderful about it. There are a few discoveries that I can see down the pike because I'm kind of watching where things are going. But... You know, there's going to be all this unpredicted cool stuff.
2: Priya, thank you so much. This has just been cool. Yes, I Thank mean, you. This, with all that's going on in the world and all the people that I if I understand you, we want to throw into a black hole and never see <laughs> and them. We're not naming that.
3: names here. No, we never, never name names on this podcast, but we, we, are, we all, everyone it's, has a list.
2: That's it is right. a wonderful <laughs> time to just... Just marvel in the cosmos and our ability to understand our place within it. I just so appreciate you taking the time today. So, thank you so much. Our guest today, everybody, has been uh, Priya Nadarajan. She's a theoretical astrophysicist at Yale. Remember, Corey, Priya, when it comes to testing our theories about black holes and space and time, science science rules. rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show, helps us figure out what you want to hear about. So thank you. Be sure to check out my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785. Or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Hey, Casey Holford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Margarana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science, Science Rules. rules.
0: So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.